Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. another episode and boy is this one going to be a legendary doozy we have on the show today not in person but in the ethereal sense we're together the legendary ken babs of the merry pranksters a personal hero of mine <laughs> a personal hero of mine a guy i i, I I've, in a way i've studied i've studied the merry pranksters i've studied our counterculture and uh you know ken babs is a huge part of it he was born in january 14th 1936 in mentor ohio he's an american author and famous mary prankster who became one of the psychedelic leaders and icons of the 1960s babs is well known for his participation in the acid tests and being with ken kesey on the bus further and of course was a big force in the book the electric kool-aid acid test some of his published works is 1994 he co-wrote with Ken Kesey, The Last Go-Round, and in 2011, he finally, <laughs> after a very long time, published a novel, Who Shot the Water Buffalo? A coming-of-age novel about the Vietnam War and based on his early writing as life in the armed forces during the first years of the Vietnam War. He was also featured in the 2011 documentary, Magic Trip, uh, Ken Kesey's Search for, for a Cool Place, and in 2005, 
<laughs> was, uh, you know, the Smithsonian approached them to try to get the uh, original further bus, which you tried to pass off a phony bus, didn't you, Ken? Ken? Yeah, what? Did you try to pass off a phony bus on the Smithsonian when they asked well, you for that? Well, no. Uh... <laughs> What happened was uh, we had a bus all set up and everything, and that uh, Casey said uh, there was some people from Portland that set up the uh, thing of the bus going to uh, the Smithsonian, and Casey heard about that. He says that would be like somebody calling up the Smithsonian and saying they want to donate Tom Selleck's dick without <laughs> Tom Selleck ever having to say so. <laughs> but uh so well we set up a thing uh which we had a lot of uh, press aboard and everything and uh we're headed out with the bus to uh go to uh the smithsonian and we had to stop in california for Keezy to give a talk at a college and when he was in there talking uh i went outside and uh zane Keezy, Keezy's son and a couple other guys were stealing the bus and they saw me, and they didn't want me to go and say anything, so they uh, kidnapped me and uh, put me on the bus, and uh, they they drove away, and somebody went back and painted a chalk outline on the street there where the bus had been. And and we headed back toward uh, Oregon and stopped uh, at night. It was uh, at a, by a railroad track uh, where there was a light on there and painted the bus with uh, washable blue paint, the whole bus blue, so you couldn't see it was a painted bus. And Zane, uh, <laughs> they, they uh, told me uh, that uh, I had to go into the, we stopped at a restaurant, and they told me I had to go and make a phone call. They set it up to the guy in New York City, a uh, 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 radio host that was chronicling the bus trip and made me uh, tell them that they had kidnapped me, and if... Uh, uh, so they didn't, uh, if they said anything about it or said where we were or anything, they'd, uh, harm me bodily. And not only that, but they were cutting up the uh, credit card so nobody could tell who was using the bus credit card. <laughs> you know, I think it's really amazing the contribution that you and the Merry Pranksters have done on planet Earth. I mean, prior to big concert experiences, the Merry Pranksters were hosting acid tests where you had musicians, you had artists, um, and this was prior to LSD being illegal, and you had musicians, you had artists come in and perform while people were taking psychedelics, specifically LSD, and and it was just an event, an, an event, and I just want to know, like, what was your first experience with psychedelics, personally, like, as we go into well, your... Well, personally, uh, uh, it came about because Keezy was working as a well, before he was even working as an aide at the VA hospital, when, when he was still at Stanford uh, in the grad writing program, uh, he got in with a program due to a friend of his where the government was testing people with different drugs to see how they'd react. And uh, he got paid like 25 bucks a session. And sometimes you had nothing, a placebo. Other times you had some weird thing. But every once in a while, you got a drug that was really good. So is that uh, why he wonderful. did that? I've always uh, wondered that. I've always wondered what makes a person volunteer for drug trials because it's very well known that Ken Kesey first discovered LSG through those Stanford drug trials. But it's not like he needed the money. I mean, 25 bucks, I mean, sure, it's nice to have, but was it because 
some of the drugs did have an effect that attracted him to that? Like, what makes a person really go for those drug trials? Well, the thing that made him go for it was a good friend of his, Vic Lovell, who was already doing them, uh, told Kesey to try it. He said, sometimes it's uh, we get some good shit. And <laughs> Kesey was willing to give it a try. And so <clears throat> then after they found out, they'd get, they'd get together and they say, okay, now when we get that good drug, uh, let's pretend that nothing is happening because they'd come in all the time and take their blood pressure and ask them what they're doing and they'd say nothing, nothing. And then they'd let them out on the streets and they'd be hiring shit out there. And so that was his first experience with uh, LSD. And then uh, when the trials ended, uh, he got a job working at the VA hospital, the same hospital where they were doing the trials. He was an aide there. And one night, uh, one night he was there and he saw this door. He was looking at this door and he realized it was the door to that that doctor's office who did the trials. He, the doctor, wasn't there anymore. And so Keezy got the keys off the wall and he found one that opened the door. He went in there and snooping around, he opened the the, uh, center drawer on the desk and his eyes lit up and his hair stood up and his aura started bouncing around the room and psychedelic blue, green, purple colors were flashing and he put the, uh, the bottle out and he stuck it in his pocket. 500 uh, doses of pure uh, Sandoz uh, LSD. So that was and, before LSD was illegal. So he got that bottle. Oh, of, much before LSD was illegal. Yeah, yeah. I, he uh, got that bottle of Sandoz and he brought that back to Oregon. And is that what you guys were taking when you were watching the reels of your bus trip in the barn? God, you jump from uh, you, you jump like it's a psychedelic experience. <laughs> past, present, and future all existing at once. That's how we he work was here. Still in California when he had that thing. Still at Stanford. Okay. But that's when you asked me when I first t- uh, took some psychedelics was one time when I was up there at his place. I, he gave me LSD, and we a whole bunch of us there. We all took out these guys. So that was the first time I ever did it. And it was that stuff. It was actually pure Sandoz. Sandoz yeah. And, and how, was that? The, do you feel like the Sandoz LSD is the best LSD, or do you feel like the stuff in the '60s? Because there's this, this thing that's out there that people say, "Well, the LSD of the '60s was better than the LSD of the '90s or today." Do you feel that's accurate, or is that just people's kind of like uh, well, rose I don't glass? really know because uh, I haven't uh, gotten any LSD uh, since we had it. Uh, I mean, except from people I, I know that have the good stuff. So I don't know what it's like. Although I've heard it's not as good, and, but you know, what the fuck? When you buy stuff out in the street, you got you're taking your chance. Exactly, exactly. Just always, you know, I've personally had many psychedelic experiences in my life, and I've tried the Sandoz, pure Sandoz stuff, and I've tried various different kinds and it seems every different recipe has a different kind of effect and i know that owsley's stuff was a little bit different than hoffman's and you know the sandoz recipe was hoffman's recipe so i'm just uh-huh. did you notice anything different between owsley's lsd and and the sandoz stuff or was it very similar well you know what larry said if you can remember then you weren't there <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. So um, so you're with Kesey. You're at Stanford. You're a postgraduate. You had already graduated from a college in Ohio. Is that correct? Yeah, Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. And then you went to your postgraduate at Stanford University. Yeah, I was into the writing program at Miami, and then I wanted to keep going. So I applied, and I got accepted at Stanford. And uh, 
not for not at the writing program per se, but I just got accepted into Stanford Graduate School. But then I submitted some of my writings to the uh, professor that was running the program, and I got accepted into the writing class. And that was really wonderful because I was in there with Kesey and Wendell Berry and uh, Ernest Gaines and other luminaries that all became really well-known, and we became really good friends. And we still are. That's re- that are still alive. That's amazing. That's, uh, you know, it, it's just kind of like when you're in with those early seminal moments, you know, you're going to be around those big bands like the Grateful Dead, big writers that, you know, are in the Stanford with you. But so how does that bridge to you moving to Oregon? Like where, when did you leave Stanford and go to Oregon? Well, when I went, left Stanford, I had to go in the Marine Corps because I was Naval ROTC, so I had a commitment. And so then I went in the Marine Corps and then I went to flight school and then I went to Vietnam. So I was five years in the Marine Corps. And so when I got out, uh, is when Kesey had just published his uh, novel, Sometimes a Great Number, Notion, and, so, and they were having a, a publication party in New York City, and we wanted to go to it, but there were so many of us that they wouldn't all fit in my station wagon, so Kesey bought this bus, and we painted it all up. And the other thing that happened by then is we were sick of writing uh, because of all the typing, you know, in those days with the manual typewriter, when you changed things and rewrote, you had to retype everything. And so we moved from there to making tape recordings. We had real real tape recorder, and we'd get on the floor with microphones, and we'd stay up all night high and uh, wrap uh, whole novels, playing the parts and doing the description, everything into the tape recorder. And uh, <laughs> the only thing about doing something like that is you've got to then listen to it to ascertain if what you're doing is anything, anything good or just a bunch of babbling nonsense. And then you've got to type so it all out, which is very tedious. We never typed it all out. So those we just were... listened to it to decide if we were good at it or not. <laughs> and <laughs> because what... what it meant was we were good at making things up on the spot. Uh-huh. See, it's just like writing. Our hero uh, was Jack Kerouac, who just sat down and really wrapped it out. The thing people don't realize about Kerouac, his first thing he wrote, he, he went over and over again and again until it was finally in a form he wanted to publish. So, well, you always have to do that. But uh, the point is, is that we realized we were really good at making things up in a uh, literary and creative uh, way. And at the same time, uh, George Walker, one of our gang, he brought a 16-millimeter movie camera over, and we started, we got up off the floor and got into costumes and started acting out parts, making them up as we went along and the stories and everything, and filming them. And we realized, well, shit, forget the tape recorder. We're going to be movie makers now. And uh, so with this bus uh, going to New York, uh, we were going to film and, ta- film and tape the whole thing and come back and edit it up, and it would be a big-time movie. It was out on the screens, and from then on, we'd be big-time movie makers. And the big thing that happened was that made it really real and uh, really possible was uh, getting Neil Cassidy to come on as the uh, bus driver. How? What he's was? A star, he's a star of the movie. Oh, so that he was already a character, a literary character. He was already popular, so you felt like him being a part of it would make it more authentic and and palatable to the masses. No, no, it was nothing like that. Oh, it was good. Just that this guy, Neil Cassidy, yes, Dean Moriarty, and on the road, 
and uh, a tremendous guy in his own right. And when we wanted him on there as one of our characters in the in the movie. Oh, <laughs> I see, I see. So having his energy there would create the content. Yeah, his creativity and his ability to talk circles around <laughs> anybody. And the beautiful thing about Cassidy, he wasn't just a motor mouth. He always had a story to tell and almost always had a moral to it and, and some kind of lesson behind it. And you felt like he, uh, him being there would just add a whole other layer, a layer, another dimension of epicness, you could say, to the experience. We didn't look at it like that. We, he was just part of the pranksters and uh, just one of the members of the team, but he was the outstanding star. Uh, other Others were real good, too. I mean, uh, so, he had that. He had that. Well, he was 10 years older, older than us, and he had that old background, and he had a lot of experience in what we were doing. So this segues, I guess, into your big bus ride in 1964. And That's what I'm talking about. It doesn't even segue into it. It, is, it was the bus trip. Right. And, then, and during that trip, I mean, a lot of things happened. The crea- you feel like the creation of the peace sign happened? I, I, I've heard a story where you were doing the V for victory symbol out the window, and people caught on to that and thought that it was a peace sign, and that was then kind of spread through hippie culture. It was a peace sign, yeah. But were you originally... It still is. Of course, but were you originally putting it out as a V for victory, not necessarily symbolizing peace, or did it always mean peace to you? Yes, it always meant peace. I mean, victory, peace. Right. <laughs> peace is victory. Right. Peace is the prize. The love is the victory. But And also on that bus ride was the very first tie-dye where you guys pulled over, I believe, at a somewhere, some lake during your bus trip. There's a river, the Wickiup River right. in, in Arizona. Right. And then yeah, you, and we, we poured this little pool of water that wasn't in the uh, river because we did not want to pollute the river, you know. Right. Uh, so uh, <laughs> uh, we poured some paint on the river, and then we dipped uh, Zonker, one of our guys, dipped his shirt in there, and then he put it on and danced around, and that was the first. Yeah, it wasn't tie-dye. It's... Uh, the first dip pastel painting. psychedelic. No, it's, it's dip painting is what we dip invented painting. there. Dip <laughs> and we kept doing that all the time, uh, forever, dip painting. But we never did tie-dye. Uh, tie-dye is, you know... Uh, I guess you could... Is, it, is, pro, is, is dip painting uh, what's like... What's that called that, that you do to shirts? You, uh, bleach it, right? Stain no, it? tie-dye is... A, you put it on with... Uh, What's the method of doing that? Where rubber bands? Where you, with the rubber band? Rubber band. band. Yeah, they do it like that. In Dibby. I don't know. I've never done so that. So the, there was the proto-tie-dye. Would you say that's the proto-tie-dye? Like the, uh, no, I would say it was the proto-dip uh, <laughs> uh, painting. <laughs> Dude, I'm loving talking to you right now. You're an amazing human being. I, I can't thank you enough. I mean, I can thank you for so many things. You already did all that. <laughs> Unfortunately, our listeners did not get to hear that, but that's okay. Everybody, they didn't. No, no, they did make the recording, but that's okay. But you know, but did you that bus ride? Like, did you feel like you were just like this crystal, like this this energy, like a battery, just emitting disruptive frequencies across America? Not at all. You no, felt we like you were in harmony. We felt we were adding to America. We were documenting America, but the thing that we had. A, in, in our documentary that no other had ever had was LSD. <laughs> is, that, is that when we'd stop at places and people would flock to the bus, attracted to it, and kids and everything, we'd get out our instruments 
because you know the merry band of pranksters is actually a band we all played instruments uh none of us read music or anything like that we our music is a form of uh non-verbal communication where we listen to each other and add on and talk back and forth with our instruments but everybody picks up on it and we're filming and taping the whole thing and uh at these stops, and then we pack up and go, and uh, who was that masked man? <laughs> uh, off into the distance. I don't know, but he left this sugar cube in my hand. Uh, and uh, these these segments would be like that, and then the other, the, then we'd be in the bus doing all our stuff on the bus, same sort of thing. When the cameras were rolling and the tape recorder was going, we were doing our performance art. And so when we came back, we'd... Uh, edit it all together into a two-hour movie and it would be a big screen uh, thing that nobody had ever seen before or since. Well, <laughs> during fact, that... Nobody ever, nobody's ever done it since. So during that trip, you did connect with kind of the East Coast intellectual psychedelic community, which was people like Ram Dass over and uh, Timothy Leary over at the Millbrook area at the Hitchcock Estate. How did that feel well, when you guys made it there? And connected with those people. Well, it was hot as hell, so we felt very sweaty. <laughs> and luckily, they had a nice pond there where we were able to swim and cool off in. But uh, when we got to New York City, we there was an apartment there, an empty apartment where a cousin of one of our pals uh, was gone to New York, uh, London, and we got to stay there. And that became our headquarters. And this one night, uh, Keith, uh, Cassie went out and got Ginsburg and they went and got Kerouac and they brought him over and so we had this really great uh, get together that night with the beat luminaries Wow! and then uh, next day uh, Ginsburg uh, said let's go see Leary so we drove up to Millbrook and uh, went there and, and saw them and, and their scene was more of a, a tranquil uh, introspective uh, uh, scene where ours was raucous and uh, loud and uh, musical and out in the world and the bus and all that. Yeah, they so were taking psychedelics. It wasn't, and... like they, it wasn't like we were conflicting or in conflict. Right. It was just like we, it was. We, there were just two different ways of doing things. Yeah, yours was more free form, embracing the love, embracing the just the in the moment situation of psychedelics where they were testing, taking notes, writing things down, measuring things, you know, coming from that. Oh, I wouldn't put it that way. No, they really? That, oh, no, they weren't that scientific. They were doing more of the thing you said about love and peace and that. Okay. And they would afterwards talk about it and all that. And, uh, but we never talked about it afterwards. So, oh. and, but No, but what we were, we were out in the world. They were uh, in a place or uh, uh, like an ashram or someplace like that. Right, uh, right. And they were goofy. And uh, we were kind of disruptive and abrasive and all that. But uh, everybody, there, there, there was a myth afterwards that we didn't get along and that it was uh, not a good scene and uh, all bullshit uh, like that. But no, actually... Uh, Larry was had a cold or something, and we didn't see him until just we were leaving. Uh, Ramdas came up, keezing me, and said, "Hey, come on back here." And we went back behind the house, and Larry was there, and he apologized for not being able to come out and uh, mess with us. But he wanted to know us to know that we were in it in this together, and we were doing the same thing in two different ways, and we would continue to work together. And we shook on that and left and. 
uh, after that, for the rest of his life, we did do just exactly that. Well, I think it's very interesting because nobody has ever told that part of the story before because every book I've ever read, everything I've read about that experience, even in the documentary, they talk about you guys meeting, but then Leary not being there. And then you had to leave before Leary got back. But you're actually saying, no, that's not the case. You did get to connect with Leary there, but just for a little bit. Yeah, right when we were leaving. Uh, uh, but guess what? What's that? I've got good news for you. I've written a big book called Cronies, all about the adventures with Kesey and Cassidy and the pranksters and our friends oh and the great dead. Thank you. Uh, 582 pages long, 70 chapters. Yes. And, it, and it's called Cronies. And it's in New York City, been there for over a year now looking for a publisher, but no publisher will touch it. Why is that? Why do you think that is? That's a crazy. I'm ready to buy the book right now. <laughs> like, what Jeez, is going everybody on? is. I've got thousands and thousands of fans clamoring for it. What's the holdup, do you think? Why are they? Why the are holdup they... is that the publishing industry uh, does not have the guts or the interest anymore to do any kind of book that isn't, doesn't look to them like uh, something that's going to sell a lot of books. That isn't in all the traditional vein of all the books that are coming out today. It's very rarely today that you see really uh, uh, innovative kind of book. Uh, like, I don't think Kerouac's book would be published today. Nobody would touch it. Right, it's not uh, geared it's for sale. It's a total stream of consciousness, consciousness way. And my book is, it is different. It's different from any other book because it's not even, uh, it's not a memoir and it's not fiction. It's something called a burlesque which is a, uh, a legitimate literary form. It's been around for a long time, but not many people know about it. And its definition is it's a historical occurrence embellished with inventions and exaggerations. Oh, I saw that was perfect for me because, uh, you know, who can remember what happened? <laughs> so I'm able to, you know, kind of remember and, uh, and write it like a story. So every chapter is a story in itself. Uh, going through it's not like your chronological regular kind of book you know like leads from one chapter it's almost like the bible it's like every book is a different book (laughs) well thank you for that (laughs) (laughs) hear that everybody it's it's almost like the bible (laughs) dude i mean the love i have for the merry pranksters what you guys and i and I, i came into the scene you know i'm only 42 years old so i mean i came into the scene late and just the fact that you were able to influence my life and still influence people with the experiences and the stories and the events that have happened for you is amazing. Like you're still well, that's out there. Because, uh, that's because what came in in the sixties, uh, the whole psychedelic revolution was like a tsunami wave that came in and it came into the West coast, uh, and then swept across the country, uh, and it, and it's values and it's, uh, uh, creativity and it's, uh, ideals and everything about it are still alive and well. And well, but the, they exist now under the asphalt. We say uh, the asphalt being the uh, you know the, the big city and uh, they are everywhere the cars and all that. You know the culture that uh, is all caught up now in the turmoil that's going on. And then, but underneath that, the people that they're in the know are continuing to do the things that are, are essential to keep the world going and to keep our spirits up. And, uh, and to be able to groove in a, in a kind of ungroovy situation. Right, just to keep the frequencies high, keep the love alive, keep the community alive. There's people like us that are out there trying to keep the fire going. Oh, yeah, millions and millions. Right. So you were around, though, for that, you know, you talk about how 
the, you know, the sixties were a tsunami of consciousness. You could say, I mean, you were around ground zero. I mean, literally ground zero at every one of these, uh, legendary events was the summer of love. How they say, was it really so magical that it, that it felt like the world was going to change at that moment or has it been dramatized over the years? Well, I think the, the change had, had been already, uh, uh, established. And, uh, by 1967, the summer of love, uh, where everybody was pouring into San Francisco. Well, after uh, typical of all kinds of things like this are the, after the, uh, the beautiful minnows and become uh, uh, golden fish. The sharks come in and start <laughs> nibbling around the edges and taking, mm-hmm. you know, doing what they can. And by that time in 1967, that was happening. And not only that, our work was pretty much done in uh, uh, the Bay Area. Uh, our, our, all the events we did. Well, right. because for one thing, uh, when we while we were doing uh, the acid test, uh, Kesey got busted for pot. And he had uh, uh, the sentencing come up, and uh, he was going to go to jail. And I think this was in 66, and uh, maybe even late 65. And so he faked his suicide and split for Mexico. Right. Yeah, I remember and that he story. Left, yeah, so he left me with the acid test scene, and we, were in, uh, we went to, uh, we were on the way of going to uh, L.A. and doing it down there. And didn't you so do it in we Portland there and one time? did it for a while, but this one night when uh, the next day LSD was going to become illegal, we got on the bus and we split, and we went down and met up with Kesey in, uh, in, in Mexico, down on the beach in southern Mexico, and, and lived there for six months, six wonderful months. I, I do. And uh, kind of like what you'd call woodshedding. Yeah, I do and, uh, know that story. It's absolutely, you know, it's a shame that you guys had to run, but thankfully you had that space to... Well, well I don't, we didn't see it as running. Uh huh. We we were running. We were we were going because <laughs> <laughs> uh, as always, we were moving ahead right. in a positive direction. And uh, so anyway, uh, our six months visas were up, so it was time to come back. And so when we came back, uh, the summer of love was coming on '67, and so we knew it was time to split. So. <clears throat> Meanwhile, uh, Keithy's dad and brother had bought this 68-acre farm in Pleasant Hill, Oregon. So we all went there. Keithy then had gotten, he'd turned himself in, and he was in jail for six months at an honor camp in San Mateo County in California. So while he was there, all the rest of us were at that farm getting established. And then uh, in 67, he got out. Uh, late 67 and uh so then we went into a whole new era well i don't pranksterdom i do want to back up a little bit because i i brought up the summer of love which was in 67 but we so we kind of glossed over the end of the bus trip and the whole acid test experience which is so potent and powerful people need to know about this so in 64 you know you finished your bus trip you came back you had all this footage that you were going to make into this amazing movie hundreds of hours of footage and I believe at first you edited it down to a 30-hour version and then eventually into kind of a more digestible, shorter, maybe three- or four-hour version. Is that correct? No. Oh, not, <laughs> not at, at all. all. Thank you for dispelling all the stuff. Look, Ken, this is all the stuff we that's had out like there. We like 40 hours of film and tape. Okay. And the film uh, was on a 16-millimeter camera, but we didn't have the tape recorder that synced the tape with the camera. 
we ran our uh, sound on a reel-to-reel Sony uh, tape recorder that ran on 110 volts, and the bus, you know, is uh, 12 volts. So we had a generator on the back that we called the generator because it was always going, we'd be on the bus going, with the generator. And sometimes they would go, this is running too fast, and other times it would go, it's going too slow. So when we got there to Rwanda after the bus trip and we're editing, uh, we'd uh, set up the tape recorder and we had the whole 40 hours laid out on the table, tapes and uh, film and all the pranksters were in there. It was Friday night, we were going to watch the whole thing straight through from beginning to end. And so uh, we started up the uh, camera and the tape recorder, and there the first reel is Neil Cassidy's in the bus, he's in the driver's seat. I'll tell you what, Chief, I'll tell you what, these bankers are hungry, man. He says, they got to get out there and get some food, none of this goddamn Radburger crap. He says, let's have some real food, chicken, chicken, fried chick. Yeah, that chick, she was so fried, she didn't know if her head was on fire or was her bottom. But I found out really quick, and I can tell you which was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stoward, yeah, why? And the next day, you know, she was screaming for help. And we all went, what the fuck's happening here? And what was happening was when the tape recorder ran too fast, the tape played back, ran too slow. And when the tape recorder ran, when it was being taped, ran too slow, and when it played it back, it ran too fast. And we realized, oh, we got a big editing problem here. <laughs> How do we match the sound and the picture when we're doing the final, when we're doing the edit, where they both have to be together? Did you figure it out eventually? <laughs> what? Did you figure that out eventually? How to sync up the audio and the video? <laughs> eventually is a good word. Because <laughs> I think that some of the footage that was in that Magic Trip documentary did oh, have. Fuck that Magic Trip! That was a terrible movie. Okay, good. Because I wasn't sure. I wanted to ask you your feelings about that, because some well, of that's it... my feelings. I mean, we we could cover a lot of ground to get to that. In oh fact, yeah, no, we no. But okay, yeah, we got so, plenty cause, of time. Because what happened was when we were there trying to work together, and we would find parts that worked, and and so we'd show them on Saturday night. We'd work all week, and then so we'd show them on Saturday night at Keezy's house and Honda, all that. We'd all watch them. And the word got out in the Bay Area, so people started pouring in there for these Saturday night shows. And it became too bad a big a scene with a huge mess had to be cleaned up and everything. So that's when the acid test started. We decided to rent a hall and go out and do this in a hall right. and play our instruments and anything. And by this, we knew the musicians, the uh, guys. And uh, so they had appeared at uh, a party at my house in. Uh, SoCal, California, near Santa Cruz, uh, and uh, we're playing there, and we got to know them real well, and so when we did the first acid test, it wasn't even an acid test then either, uh, The, first, the a party, uh, they showed up there, and then they became kind of like the house band, and it was during one of those, right after one of those, they changed their name from the Warlocks to the Grateful Dead. Yeah, the very so that, was, that just kept growing and growing. Uh, and so, like I said, we had, uh, so then we went to Mexico, we came back to, to uh, uh, Oregon and we were all living there and the bus movie was just sitting, nothing was happening to us in a vault in LA, but these movie makers would come to Kesey and they'd say, we can make that movie for it for you. And he said, okay, he says, go for it. And he, they'd get all the stuff and they would 
wouldn't hear anything from him. And then maybe four or six weeks later, Keith would go out on the porch in the morning. There were all the boxes of tapes and film there <laughs> sitting on his porch. And Keith, he said, many have tried to climb this mountain and all have failed. <laughs> That's a hilarious story. I like how it just ended up on your front porch. They didn't even knock on the door. They didn't even be No, like, <laughs> they just left there during the dark of night. <laughs> so, I mean. Okay, so. The acid The thing test. that happened that really changed everything was our sons, his son Zane and my son Simon. That, and the thing that did this was Steve Jobs putting uh, Apple II computers in every school in the country. And these kids learning how to work these computers. And in those days, all you could do was pro, uh, do programs, you know, write your own programs, right. C programs. And so uh, they were really versed in it. And so... Uh, uh, they showed, they convinced Keezy and through another guy we knew who was into it already to get into video editing. Uh, because with video editing, you know, you can adjust the sound. You can move it up and fast, slow and everything and, and sync it up with the, uh, with the movie, with the film. Oh boy, suddenly we were in a new ball game. It took a long time for us to figure out how to work this stuff and how to Keep it from keep us from breaking uh, breaking down the equipment uh, because we had never worked at it before and we had some doozies of uh, uh, equipment with my son. What my son Isaac worked in computers and he arranged at uh, uh, Silicon Graphics for a whole video editing suite. I mean, the top of the line and <laughs> shit for us to try to learn that. Uh, but fortunately, there was a, a super woman in uh, back in the East Coast who who knew it by up, in, inside and out. And so uh, during the night, Keezy would work on the movie, uh, trying to edit it and everything, and a piece and all that. And then I'd come in in the morning, he'd go to bed, and I'd look, and the, everything in the thing was in shambles. So I'd have to call her up and get everything straightened out. And Keezy would say, yeah, he says, I spent all night wrecking everything, and Dan spent all day fixing everything. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we were doing this all in a little room in his bus barn in the back, and uh, we decided that we were just too crowded. We couldn't do all of here, so we rented a couple office spaces up in Pleasant Hill behind the bank. And that's when we were really grooving. That was our office, and we had... Uh, him on a video editing suite, and me on one, and my son Simon on another. And that's when we did the bus movie. We did part one, which was called Journey to the East, which took us from uh, leaving uh, or painting the bus, getting the bus and painting the bus, and driving down to, uh, I think we ended up in like uh, uh, Panhandle of Florida, that part. That was called Journey to the East. And then part two was north to Manhattan, which we we uh, drove all the way up. And this is where Cassidy was in all his glory going up the New Jersey Turnpike, wrapping all the way up the New Jersey Turnpike, taped and filmed some fantastic stuff. And then into Manhattan to the apartment, and there at the apartment, and then to uh, Millbrook. And then back across, uh, uh, but that's when part two ended, uh, when when we left Millbrook. And uh, then we were going to do part three, and that's when Kesey uh, uh, had the liver cancer and the operation and died. And so that just killed everything. <laughs>
I heard that there might have been some malpractice there. Is that correct or not correct? Well, Mal, you know, he's around all the time, and he tries to practice, but he doesn't really practice much, <laughs> so he slips up time and time again uh, because you know, you got to keep your hand uh, steady when you're doing this kind of shit. Uh, yeah. So, you know, but who who knows and who who will tell? Only the nose knows, and the right. nose sniffs it out, but so far the nose hasn't revealed what the nose knows. But, you know, everything so is... We can't get into any of that or even think about it. Yeah, you know, we everything happens exactly how it's supposed to. We're in this beautiful, psychedelic world that's you know and sometimes it happens even when it's not supposed to happen right and we just <laughs> like it's not supposed to happen yeah. <laughs> in this psychedelic world yeah, it's and, a... you know speaking of that the shit that's going on now is a real psychedelic experience without drugs i think so as well i mean it's really destabilizing the structure that people mainstream people you know the people that maybe have never taken psychedelics before, they have this view of the world, and that view is destabilized. I know, I know, and you can tell the panic that's going on, and unless people can grasp it as something to to groove behind and uh, know that we will get through it. Uh, although, who knows what's going to be at the other end when we're through a, a parched earth where nobody can live. Uh, I feel like... <laughs> or something that's been restored. I feel like, Ken, we're going towards the restoration. I feel like humanity's moving towards heaven on earth, or some conflict-free scenario where we have deep spirituality, all the technology, and all the, you know, love, the community, it's coming. Like, it's coming. It's just we're in this growth pattern. That's what I believe. Oh, that's true. I agree with that, true. But we're going to have to go through some real turmoil and torment before it happens. I mean, you know, this is not going to be an overnight thing. Right. And, you know, it's the fire is the catalyst of change. But, you know, one thing I do want to get back to the the acid test a little bit because they were the proto concerts. We're using that word proto a lot. Before there was a big concert industry, you had bands there. You had artists on sound systems performing in, in a way where people were buying tickets and, and, and it was experience. You and people like Bill, you guys and people like Bill Graham were the earliest people putting on these type events. Well, we never put on that kind of event. The acid tests were always come in and pay your dollar, get your picture taken and get pasted to your acid test cards and you just come on in. And then if you come back the next week, you show your card and pay a dollar and come on in. Okay. <laughs> and if you don't have the dollar, come on in. <laughs> but uh, there were the stages were not even stages. People were just right on the floor there. The Grateful Dead set up at one end with their out set up, and us at the other end with ours. And sometimes they'd play. Sometimes we'd play. Sometimes we'd play together, and the movies would be going on the wall all the time, and the light show would be going on all the time on the wall, and everybody'd be high, and be all kinds of great shit going on in there. But Bill Graham took that all in, onto the stage and uh, separated the audience from the uh, from the players, um. and uh, turned it into these that kind of event, and that's what survived. Although, speaking of what's going on under the asphalt. All over the country now in the summertime, people are holding their own acid tests out in the woods and in different places uh, that nobody knows about except those doing it uh, with, the, with the bands playing and uh, everybody high and uh, everybody doing all the stuff you do at, at that event. In uh, the 50th anniversary of our bus trip in, uh, of 64, Zane took the bus out and went around the country and found all these places and from one to the other to the other. And he made a movie of that, a terrific movie. I can't 
think what the name of it is. But everybody out there should go to Zane Kesey's website, K-E-Y-Z.com, because he has uh, that movie. And also, getting back to the bus movie, which we left there, is those two uh, uh, parts we did, part one and part, part two, there at the we we had them on uh, we were cranking them out on VHS tapes at the time, and selling them on our website. And uh, yeah, I did buy would, a couple. Uh, of those. Send in an order, and we'd send them the tape, and they'd send us back twenty bucks. I did buy and a couple of those uh, back in the. Did you on 2000s. the VHS? Yes, I did in the year two thousand. And they were dipped. Oh, dip painting! I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, I thought... yeah, man. We remember how we talked about dip painting. <laughs> yes. Well, we had a tub out there outside the office, and we'd fill it with water, and we'd pour paint, swirls of paint, different color paints in there, and we'd dip these white cases of our uh, cardboard uh, cases of these for these tapes in there and hang them up on a pose, uh, uh, line to dry. And then we'd put the uh, the tapes in there, and Keys and I would sign them, and they went out like that. Isn't that the one you got? Like I that? got a later edition, actually. I, I bought mine in the year, I th- actually it was 2002, so I got a later edition. I oh. got a video of the Time Machine event that I was at with you guys, and then also s- some of the amazing footage from the acid test in the 60s. And, okay, and okay. Well, 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 Zane at com. Uh, he now has DVDs of uh, part one and part two. And there's some amazing footage. Everyone should go to those that website. Oh, yeah, he's got he's got a treasure trove of stuff. There. Yeah, there's stuff that, that have never been released, very personal, right. private stuff. You should definitely go there, purchase those DVDs, and, and experience yeah. what we're talking about right now. But you oh, do, yeah, I know. I do want so to tell anyway, uh, Oh, go ahead. I don't know when Magic Trip was made, but... Uh, Eleven. This guy, that guy that made it, he talked Zane into uh, into getting the stuff and bringing it out as a movie, and this became his movie and his vision of of what we were doing and everything. And it's really soiled. Uh, he was really in trying to push sex and drugs and different things. He we went and saw one he did on Hunter Thompson. And I didn't like it a bit because he had all of Hunter Thompson's ex-girlfriends talking about what a sleazeball Hunter Thompson was because they were pissed off at him because he would dump them and get another one. And uh, It was just so for shock value, did, seems like. Yeah, he, something like that, yeah. Uh, I know. And not only that, but I kept saying, what the fuck? We made that movie. Why did he have to make another one? I, ours is way better, although it's way funkier. But so what? <laughs> because what gives it its quality. So in the 60s, when you did the acid test, didn't you do one here in Portland, Oregon, where I am? Oh, yeah, sure. Do you remember anything about that? Huh? Do you remember anything specifically about that one? Because the records of that, even Phil Lesh doesn't have any memory of that. He wrote about it in his book. Nobody seems to have any clear recollections of the acid test in Portland. I was wondering if you could help us with that. That's because... The, what happened was uh, we uh, all went up on the bus heading for Portland with the band and all the pranksters and everything, and the bus broke down in California in the, in the middle of the journey. No, it wasn't in California. It was in Oregon. Uh, shit, I may, I may be confusing to here. Right That's okay. Right now. There's, yeah, there's a lot of memories in there. You know, you've been on this earth for... Oh, I know why. I know why, because we still lived in California when we went to Portland to do the acid test. That's it. 
And so it broke down in California uh, in, the, in the middle of the trip. And so we had to uh, rent a truck. I had to hitchhike to a town and rent a U-Haul and come back and put all the gear and all, everybody in the truck and drove to Portland to do it there. And, and it was and, a good one. Uh, it was a tremendous one. Uh, but nothing, I, don't, I can't think of anything outstanding that happened or anything. It was just another great acid test. Okay. And then, okay. then we had to all come back, and then we had to get the bus fixed. And I remember we we just went with that truck. We just went to a U-Haul lot in California where we were, and uh, just left it there. <laughs> Tell me some of the, about some of the spiritual transformations you were experiencing or noticing other people experience during that time via psychedelics or just the energy of that time. Did you see people change before your eyes? No. <laughs> no. No, everybody was high, man. You're high or you're all high. You don't pay attention. Well, I just mean like, you know, you have these relationships with people and then, you know, they integrate the psychedelic experience into their life and maybe they become better people. Maybe they become more loving, more compassionate. Well, yeah, but, you know, they don't. that doesn't happen in front of your face at the acid test. I mean, that everybody that does have a positive experience is changed by it and does become a better person. But that right. happens then from then on. Right. And how do you feel about other psychedelics like, uh, you know, really big right now in the year 2020 is DMT and ayahuasca. Seems like that's the psychedelic. Did you say DMT? Correct. Yes. DMT. I never liked DMT. Why is that? I don't know. It it didn't have any illumination to it all. It's just you were out there kind of crazy. It always had kind of an orange tint to it. Uh Jerry Garcia said, oh, yeah, he says, that's a ride on a seventh-dimensional carnival. Yes, very much so. I mean, I it, know, so what the hell? It's not it's not uplifting or anything about it. And then what was the other one? Uh, the the other ayahuasca. One I've, never tried. I've I, never tried that. I've never a, been in, interested in any other drugs. I had DMT a few times. I never wanted it again. What about MDMA? Because I know you're a big LSD oh, guy. Oh, MDMA, that's another big waste of time. I mean, okay. you, know, you feel a little groovy or anything, but geez, it gave me a hell of a headache. More of a party drug versus a spiritual Party drug, drug absolutely. And LSD, to me, was never a party drug. Yeah. Well, why don't you elaborate that on a little bit more? Why isn't LSD a party drug? What makes it special and unique? What does it do for people? Well, for me, it was always uh, going places I'd never been before and having experiences I'd never been before and illuminating my mind uh, values and uh, the way to be uh, and also uh, showing uh, showing me the way I was, which is not good, you know, and uh, showing giving me a choice to go one way or the other or both ways or what. But, you know, you come out of it and, like you say, if you are uh, really... Uh, influenced by it you become a better person right and you, you you treat the world better you treat other people better you you try to in your own way be a better person and you know no more lying no more cheating no more stealing no more doing any of that stuff bad mouthing or anything you know the way i see it is there's a thing going on in people's minds all the time there are forces <clears throat> that, that are bearing down on us i don't know where they're coming from but it's like there are spirits that hover above us that want to play in our world, a material world, but they can't. So, but they can get into your heads with some way, and some of them are malevolent, and some of them are beneficent. And so, the malevolent uh, thoughts that you have in your head, you want to get rid of those. But like the I Ching says, you cannot fight evil head on uh, because it only makes evil stronger. So, what you have to do is 
banish that as best you can and and, and have the benevolent thoughts replace the malevolent thoughts. <clears throat> and you really got to learn to do this. I have to do it all the time is when I have a thought. I say, wait a minute, I don't want to be thinking that shit, you know. And it's hard for me because as a writer, a fiction writer, and read a lot of fiction, <laughs> I'm always coming up with plots and stuff. And so I'm thinking, wait a minute, that's too mean. I don't want to do that. <laughs> and so you got to just be able to do that. But most people can't do that. They don't realize that, that, the, that the mind does not, the thing that runs your runs your body and you it's it's something else i don't know it's the will it's, i don't have a, a name for it but there is a greater power that can control your mind uh, it can tell it what to do and tell it to shut up when it's doing the wrong thing it's really you though it's that your higher self is in control of the animal you, you can tell it to focus on negative things you can tell it to focus on positive things you can reject things coming into your consciousness and your subconscious you can accept things coming into your Conscious. It's just really about having that power, that uh, uh, connecting with your higher self to have that level of control. Well, I know, I know, and so, but most people aren't aren't, aren't able to do that. They don't even realize it can be done. I mean, that's like people in power that are doing stuff. They get in a mindset that they think it's like I saw a bumper sticker one side saying, "Just because you think it doesn't mean it's true." <laughs> but well, these people, they think what they think is true, the truth, and so they try to you know, impose it upon others. It's really interesting. Ken, there's so many stories that I want to hear from you. I know there's something that I've been wanting to ask you for a really long time. Um, I know that you were part of the amazing expedition to Egypt in 19. No, I wasn't. I didn't go to Egypt. You didn't go to Egypt. What happened? No, I always kicked myself in the ass for not going to oh, Egypt. Dude. And Kesey always said he kicked himself in the ass for not going to a Woodstock. <laughs> So you went to Woodstock, he went to Egypt. Why did you miss the Egypt trip? Tell everyone what happened. Well, I had too much going on here at that time. Uh, I had bought property and was building a house, and uh, and I had a big scene that I was having to take care of, and uh, I just didn't feel I could get away at the time. That's okay. You made it to Woodstock, which is equally as potent and powerful. And uh, Yeah, that worked out good. Do you have any stories about Woodstock that you've never really shared before or something, some kind of insight that you gained there that you feel like could help people? Well, I got to go on the stage with Grateful Dead after this big storm and the whole thing was flooded and falling apart and talk, do a rap until they finally got their stuff working and went into Love Light. So that was good. Oh, wow. And also, uh, I ran what they called a free stage, which was across the hill and through the forest and down into another area where the hog farmers were setting up, the, uh, had their free kitchen going, and ran this free stage with the buses. I took 40 buses, and four buses and 40 people there, hired by the uh, hog farmers to come help them. And they were in a semicircle around the back of the stage, and so we had a band there that showed up called the Quarry uh, from New Jersey, and they became our house band. And so we ran another stage over there. It was really good. Anybody could come up and play and sing on it. Oh, wow. And that was a lot of fun. And then also, the other neat thing happened was uh, the head of security was a former Marine, and I got to talk to him, and we hit it off, and we were really buddying up and everything. And so this one day, we were out there. Oh, in fact, he had me. Uh, they had hired 40 uh, off-duty New York City policemen to be the security for the thing. And so they were all there, showed up, and he said, Ken, go out and brief them. <laughs> so I got I, I got to go out there and, and tell them how, what they should be doing and not doing and everything. Uh, 
<laughs> yeah, this is a peaceful group. If you see any fights, break it up. You know, there shouldn't be anything bad happening. And this one guy says, well, what about drugs? I says, there's going to be drugs everywhere. I said, but don't worry about it. I said, unless you see somebody selling drugs. And I said, I said, I'd go up to him and tell him, no, nobody's buying and selling here. They're just sharing. If you're not going to share, we're going to take it away from you. Did it feel- so they all dug that. So they had a good time, and, they, and everybody had a good time with them. Did it feel like a super powerful experience when you were at Woodstock? Did it feel like the culmination of a movement like so many people talk about? Or was it just a really big happening? Well, it's a great thing. I mean, the whole idea it was a culmination of something happening. No, because it wasn't a culmination of something happening. It was just something that took place in the ongoing uh uh, thing that's happening, uh, and with a lot of and the opportunity for a lot of people to come to this event, and for a lot of the musicians to play, it was a wonderful thing. And so the other funny thing that with me was uh, as they were talking to the guy, we were uh, in a security. His trailer was right there by the entrance, this gate that you went through, the open gate at the time, because it hadn't started yet. And uh, <clears throat> coming down the path to the gate was this phalanx of people in a row marching and this stout woman in front, the stern woman says, halt. And, and, uh, I, and the guy, the chief of security says, Ken, go see what the hell they want. And so I, went, I, uh, I said, what's going on? She says, we're the ticket takers. She says, everybody has to leave and come back and go out and come back in and show the ticket. I said, oh, really? <laughs> I said, hang on here a second, because there must have been 150,000 people in there already. Uh, so I went and, over and told the guy, and he says, well, what the hell are we going to do about this? And I says, there's only one thing we can do, make it a free concert. He says, huh. So he called over to the main stage and talked to Michael Lang and the organizers, and they talked it over, and they came back and said, okay, make it a free state, a free concert. So he turned to me, he says, okay, it's a free concert. And all these people that were standing around listening, they just went over and they started pulling the fence back and opening it up until there was no more fence there at that, that area. And I went over to the lady and I said, well, sorry, they said there was going to be a free concert, so you don't need to do any work. What an amazing said, story. It was about face and they all marched away. Ken, <laughs> <laughs> uh, how does it make you feel? How does it make you feel that the term on the bus means you discovered the magic of music and psychedelics. Like to this day, the term 2020 in 2020, you could say, Oh dude, I'm on the bus. Like, how does that make you feel? Millions of people use that term. How does that make you feel? It makes me feel like I always feel with my hands. (laughs) How does it make you feel in your heart? Well, it's it's not, I don't think about shit like that. You know, it, I mean, it's it's a really interesting thing to think about that the actions of you and your friends left such a lasting mark on American culture. I mean, it, well, you can give Tom Wolf credit for that for his book, The Electric Kool Aid Acidist. Right, but hey, there wouldn't be that book without the bus. There wouldn't be. I know, but it made us the poster children of the movement that we were only part of. Ah, I see. So you were said the blind man as he picked up his hammer and saw. <laughs> That's something my dad says. So that's really funny. Um, <laughs> Ken, I love having you on here. Okay, so look, there was Acid Test Forty took place at, in Vegas in two thousand five. The fiftieth anniversary was in twenty fifteen. Tell me about AT sixty in twenty twenty five. You're going to be there. 
What is it? What are we going to do? What? How do you know that? What? What the AT sixties in twenty twenty five? Yeah. Well, I mean, I just did the math. I mean, AT forty was at Vegas in two thousand five. I remember that. Then AT two Brutus. <laughs> and then <laughs> AT fifty acid test fifty. 2015, we got, look, 2025. How many years is that from now? Uh, five years from now. We have five years to uh, play. I'd probably still be alive. Man. You're definitely. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I'm not interested in any of that. Are you going to show up? <laughs> I'll be in Acapulco then. Sorry. <laughs> All right. So tell me about the Merry Pranksters today. So there's some people have moved on to the next dimension. Some people are like you are still here on the third dimension. Where do you feel like the Merry Pranksters should be a louder voice in this day and age? Should, should the Merry Prankster frequency, the vibration of the Merry Pranksters, should it be louder? Well, I don't know. We don't, we're, we don't do events like we used to. Uh, for, for quite a while after Kesey died, I'd get everybody together and we'd do shows, uh, performances and that. But now everybody's pretty much into their own thing. I mean, we're all old people now, you know. Uh, I mean, I still like to perform, but uh, I don't really want to put together a show or anything like that. Well, could there be a, uh, a next generation? No, I think, uh, I think whatever it is we do, we continue to do, and our influence still radiates, but maybe not so much on the uh, national scale or even a regional scale. I think the work that you're doing is still radiating internationally, globally. And will be influencing people for probably a hundred years or longer, like hundreds of years. I mean, there. Well, could... that's true, but it was a seed that planted, and uh, a tree grew out of that seed, and we're all branches of that tree, and it continues to grow. Yeah, and drop new seeds and make more trees. Drop new seeds, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, could there be something like, uh, like the Grateful Dead lid with their Dead and Company? Could there be like a Pranksters and Company, like a different people, totally unrelated to the original Pranksters, but still carrying on the legacy? Oh, absolutely. I told you that. It's happening all over the country, but nobody knows about it. Ah, but there's no actual centralized group. No, and rightly so. Correct. So tell me, Ken, tell me some of the things. This is an open forum for you. This is your chance to tell some stories that nobody knows about, stuff that you really want people to know about, interesting stories that, that could be lost to history if you don't tell them right now. So tell uh, us. Some... I put those all in my book. <laughs> you want me to read it to you? It's uh, only 582 pages. How much time you got? Uh, we got all the time in the world. But, you know, how about this? As For cronies, which is coming out, have you thought about self-publishing that? For sure, but I got to let it run out until we get a uh, uh, rejection from all the 30 or 40 publishers it's at. Uh, I think we're down to... Okay. Uh, like 16 we haven't heard from yet. So, hey, but you know what? Today is Ken Kesey's birthday. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. Thank you, Ken yes. Kesey. Oh, my God. In fact, last night I saw Kesey behind my eyelids as I was taking a nap. Or am I, I was sleeping. You felt the spirit of Ken Kesey with you. Tell me more about that. that. No, there he was. He's in my naps. He's in my dreams a lot. We were walking along on a sidewalk in Springfield, and I said, what's this? And I picked up a small pipe, and a pile of hash fell out. Kesey was worried it was a plant. I said, what? No, it's been harvested. It's no longer a plant. 
and I started gathering it up in my hand. All kinds of people were walking past looking at me, and I was holding it bald in my hand. And then I didn't know what happened. I woke up and I was looking out my eyes. No looking, no longer looking at my eyelids. Eyelids. I was on the backside of the dream. Damn. That's very powerful, Ken. That's. Are there other experiences in your life where you felt the spirit of Ken Kesey with you, or had the dreams like that? Oh, he's in my dreams all the time. Cassie's in my dreams all the time. All of us. We're always doing the same things. We're always doing. Kesey said, uh, let me dig this. Kesey said, one time a friend of mine and I were taking LSD and thought we had written the history and future of the universe. What we actually wrote down was something on the order of, if you pick your nose long enough, the world will unravel. <laughs> you know, there's some deep words of wisdom there. I mean, it's, it's actually. <laughs> this, this is Kesey. Right. He also said we need to encourage each other. The issue is carrying this little flame and people passing it on. All it takes is one person. One person to know CPR. One person to stand up and say, I'm going to stand up and fight for what's true. Fascism wants baptism coast to coast. You can have 400,000 troops marching by. And just one guy could be standing alongside of the street yelling, fish, fish, fish. It drives them crazy. And that's something we can all do. Right. We can just be that torchbearer. We can be the candle. We can keep the flame alive. There's so much that we've learned from the Merry Pranksters. There's so much we've learned from the Grateful Dead and Ken Kesey and everything that you guys brought to the table. I mean, did it feel like you were at the fountainhead of something huge at the time? No, not at all. We were just doing what we liked to do and what we wanted to do and trying to do the best work we could. And you felt like you were just living in service. Essentially, you were living to give back to the humanity. You were just doing the work that needed to be done. <laughs> we were doing the work that we wanted to do. and We didn't have any sense that it needed to be done. <laughs> Did you feel that? No, actually, you know, the 50s was a glorious time for us growing up, you know. Everything was groovy, and the car came along, the television came along, and and uh, rock and roll uh, happened. Uh, and, and so everything just naturally evolved into the 60s with the addition of uh, LSD, which, you know, was like a, a adrenaline jumpstart boost into, into higher stuff. And then, so we were just going along with the times, uh, you know, and doing our things together. We were all, well, Keezy, well, he was a wrestler, but I was a basketball player. He played football, and uh, me too. And so we knew how to form a team, and then, and then the team would be, you know, doing what it does, just like just like the bands. I mean, there were so many great bands in, uh, in San Francisco at the time. Oh, yeah, that, that was, I mean, that was a renaissance of incredible music. Looking back, it's hard to, when you're in it, it's hard to realize that you're a legend, actually a part of history, making history. No, there's no sense of that when you're doing it. Right. Part of history or anything. You don't give a shit about anything. You're just digging it and doing it. And, you know, and people were so creative in all the arts. It was, they were just going, you know, it was just going burgeoning. It was, it was it, here's the thing about it, is, is you learn, and more and more people are finding out, to be, you know, everybody has this kind of creative bent where they like to write or they like to dance or they like to do art or you know, cartoons or whatever. 
but the thing in America is if you can't make a living at it, there's no sense in doing it. You know, because uh, you're not good enough or, you know, you don't qualify. But that's all bullshit. You want to keep doing that till the day you die. I mean, for me, it's the trombone. Uh, you know, I started playing the trombone in sixth grade, and then when I went to college, uh, you know, I was like, oh, well, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, it's high school stuff. <clears throat> so I put it aside. But then later on, I picked it up again. And now, uh, and then when the band, when the pranksters were going, uh, it was, I played my trombone as part of the band, and uh, I still do it all the time. I play with a lot of groups, and uh, I do a combination uh, horn and uh, rap uh, and play. Do you know the band? Uh, uh, what the hell are they called? Do I know that band? Can I think of the name? Uh, Terrapin Flyer. Yes, I Chicago. do. Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah, tr- tremendous band, and they have uh, Melvin Seals play with them. Right. And yes. I just love to play with them when Melvin's playing. Melvin can go out. Oh, he's the other thing about music is uh, music is so kind of uh, stylized where, you know, they follow the 4-4 beat and, you know, and so many (laughs) things to the measure, you know, and do the same thing over and over again. But the prankster thing is we always do a, we saw like the song is like a frame around a picture and the song is in the frame. And every once in a while you do something where you break out of the frame and go out there and explore places where you've never been before or anybody's been before. And then to, to complete the story, or just like writing a story, you have to bring it back in and close it down. So with Terrapin Fire and Melvin Seals, I'd always say to them, okay, now Melvin, I'd talk to him before. <laughs> I just love talking to him. He's such a groove. And uh, I'd say, okay, Melvin, now I says, uh, we'll, we'll, I'll be going along there. I said, I'll be doing my rap and all that. And uh, you guys will be playing behind me. Then I'll give you the nod, I said, and then that's when we go out. I said, we'll go out as far as we can go, all the way out and come back again. And he looks at me and says, yeah, he says, you give me the nod. <laughs> and so he'd always do it. <laughs> it was so much fun because he, he, there's nobody like him on the planet. Oh, no, he's an amazing human being. I love what he's doing with, you know, he's continuing the Jerry Garcia band legacy. And now he even recruited uh, John... Um, John Kay, I, I always forget how to pronounce his last name, who used to be in Dark Star Orchestra. And now oh, he, yeah, right. He now has him as a guitar player doing the modern, uh-huh. the JGB stuff. Um, no, that's good. What? That's good, too. But those are all, all straight songs. They don't really try to go out in those songs. <laughs> but one thing I want you to tell me in the story, I want you, <clears throat> now I remember reading this a really long time ago, but you were on a car ride, and I believe you were with your mother, and you're, you were trying to describe the concept of psychedelic to your mom. And I believe, <laughs> and I believe there was like a, some kind of thing happened where like a bird flew by that like it picked up a frog that ate an insect all in like, and you're like, and that's psychedelic. Is that, did that story actually happen? Yes, it did. Can you tell me that story? You just did. Well, I didn't do it as good as you. Well, hell. <laughs> so... Uh... So you're riding with your mom, you're in this car, and then you're trying to... And then a frog jumps up on the windshield. Right. And looks at us right through the windshield, and a bird comes along, grabs the frog, and flies away with it, as I'm trying to explain psychedelic. I said, see, well, that was psychedelic. (laughs) My mother says, no, she she says, that was a frog and a bird. (laughs) That's actually super hilarious. And of course, that's your mom bringing you down to earth. She's just like, no, sorry, dude, that's just a bird. What well, is just a bird? In the 
<laughs> on one level. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, but I mean, you know, if you don't know psychedelics, you can't really. So, so tell me some more stories. This is your chance to really oh, God. put some stuff out there. I know you have your book coming, Cronies, which we're all going to be looking for, and I'm going to be calling publishing companies, telling them if they don't publish this. They're insane because I, I have money. Good, do that. I have money in my I hand. I can send you a list of all of them. <laughs> I have a money in my hand right now. I'm saying, take my money, please. Like, can, uh, how, what can I do to give you this money? So, um, tell me a couple of those stories. Let's give some people some some good uh, tidbits that are, you know excerpts that that might help them understand the crazy. Tell me some great stories. Jesus Christ, uh, I can't think of any. It's always when you're on the spot, right? Yeah, I mean. Tell me some great stories. That's like someone says, tell, tell me a joke. Tell me something. Oh, I'll tell you a great story. Okay. Is uh, We had this party, uh, a Halloween party, and uh, I guess it was late 65, <clears throat> at my place my, called The Spread, and we were all set up with our instruments, and we were in there, and, and then we dropped acid, and we went outside, and we were communing with the moon and raising three feet off the ground and oming and we heard these strange noises coming from the house and uh, we dropped to the ground and went running in there and these guys were all in there playing our instruments. Jerry and Phil and Bobby and Billy and Pigpen. And so we kind of dug them and then we kind of moved in and took over and uh, we went like that. And so everybody went all night long and then in the early morning we were all lying down on the floor and... uh, uh, with the microphones and talking, and and uh, someone said, uh, "What do you believe? What do you believe it's like on the other side? What do you think? What do you think it's like? What's 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 happening?" And uh, everybody gave their take. You know, like he he was a Baptist. He firmly believed that we'd meet again. And other people were like, "Ah, who's, who knows? Nobody knows." You know. And, and then there was the. Uh, 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 what was he called? He was called the dyslectic, uh, uh, <laughs> what is it? You can't sleep. You're, uh, uh, uh you have, uh, I have this, not narcolepsy. You are, uh, insomniac. There you go. Oh yeah. The, the dyslexic insomniac, uh, agnostic <laughs> who woke up in the middle of the night and said, is there a dog? <laughs> And finally, it came down to Ginsburg, where everybody said, Ginsburg, you're the expert on this. What do you think it's like on the other side? He said, well, he says, this chicken was walking along the road. And he looks over and uh, sees another chicken over on the other side. And he yells across, hey, how do I get to the other side? And that chicken yells back, you are on the other side. You asked for it. <laughs> That's amazing story, dude. Ken, this is like mind blowing right now. I'm trying to wrap my head around all this stuff while it's Ken Kesey's birthday. I feel like the spirit of Ken Kesey is just like with us right now because I yes, actually, exactly right. I had this amazing situation. You know, I tell people this story. I was a young guy at that time machine event at the Hilton and I walked out of the Hilton and I was like, you know, I was 19. I was just really, really high on LSD. And I walked up to the further bus and I looked in, I saw Ken Kesey and I put my hand on the window and he put his hand on the other side of the window from inside the bus. We locked Uh, and we locked hands and we looked at uh, each other and smiled. And I'll never forget that. That was such a powerful, powerful experience for me. And it made me just, 
And, sure. and, yeah, and I was there in 2000 after, or 2001 after Ken Kesey passed at the very first event at the McDonald Theater when you actually had his casket on stage. Was he uh, actually in the casket? Oh, yeah, that was his uh, memorial service. Right, I was there for that. Oh, yeah, and then we carried the casket out and put it on the bus and took it back to uh, his farm where he was buried. It was a psychedelic tie-dyed casket. Or was it dipped? Was it a dipped casket? It was dipped, yes. <laughs> it was dip-painted. <laughs> yeah, you know what you know how the dip-painting dip is? You have a big thing of water, and you get this tester's group uh, paint, you know, that they use for bottle airplanes. Uh-huh. It's the most vivid paints in the world. You get all these different colors, and you swirl them all around on top. And then you take something, and and it has to be white to really take good. You dip it in there and pull it out, and all those colors stick to it in that tie-dye, or not tie-dye, that dip-painting uh, patterns. Uh-huh. And every one is different. Every single one is different. No two can ever be the same. What do you think, as Ken Kesey's best friend, I want, this is about you, this is your podcast, but I do want to know your perspective on what he would think of today's day and age. <laughs> Same thing we all do. It's psychedelic. It's stupid, and uh, let's get through it and get back to work on what needs to be done. Right. That's definitely. I mean, you know, they're they're finally talking about climate change. Right. I know, and we've been talking about that since. Well, you've been talking about it probably since the '60s. Yeah, I know because you know the, the writing is in the wall, and, uh, and now the writing is huge and awful, and the wall is uh, collapsing all around us. This. One really good thing I read in the New Yorker, we've got 20 years before it uh, reaches the tipping point where we can't do anything about it. Do you think we need outside intervention to help us, whether it's angels or aliens? What do you think about that? I think that all the help we can get is, is wonderful. If we can get that help, yes. <laughs> Have everybody out there turn on... Uh, uh, email their alien uh, uh, people and uh, their angels and uh, uh, get in contact with them and implore them to uh, uh, help us uh, re- resolve this thing. I and, think, and the big—I mean, the biggest, the biggest one, the biggest thing of all is coal. If we could just stop burning coal, it would uh, save the world. And we've been burning that for what, like thousands of years. You think we would have moved past that at this point? Well, yeah, but it's just like it always is in, in capitalistic uh, societies where the rich get richer. Is, they're not going to close down the things bringing them in all their money. They don't give a shit about the earth. So, how, what, or, are there, or are there kids that come after them? So how is your, uh, from a personal level, how's your relationship with what you perceive as God? Do you have a belief in God? Are you an atheist? Where do you stand with that? Well, you know, like you said, it's a personal relationship, and it's nobody's business but my own. Right, but you do feel like there is something bigger than us. Well, like I said, it's uh, something you know yourself and you don't tell anybody else about. Right, right. You have to just have that internal discovery, and once you have it, you know it's there. Where, where is? Oh, well, hu- if you say so. Thanks. <laughs> Where is humanity going, from your perspective, as a person that's been on this earth over eighty years now? What is your perspective? Where are we going? What patterns are you seeing reemerge? Uh, oh, birth, life, and death. Uh, that's, that's always going on. <laughs> War have, and peace. That's always going on. You have the Conflict best answers. And resolution. That's always going on. Legendary uh, answers. You're, you're absolutely. You're, you're, this is one of the best interviews I've ever done. This is so amazing. I'm so honored 
to be with you, Ken. Um, you know, we have, you know, we're creeping up on that. You know, usually you go about an hour and a half, you know, so we got about like 15 more minutes or so. So I was just thinking, um, wh- what are some of the things that you want to pe- leave people with? Like you, you know, who knows? I want to leave people with all the clutter I've <laughs> gathered over the years gone so they don't have to deal with it. I mean, you know, any day now, literally I could die 10 minutes from now. Any human being could go at any time. You could go tomorrow. Who knows? Like, we don't know. What, hey, what, don't put your mouth on it. <laughs> what, uh, what, what message do you want to leave people with, you know, for hundreds of years, somebody listening 50 years from now, what would you like them to hear about you, hear from you, to know from you? I, watch, I want to apologize to all of you for not getting all this <laughs> shit cleaned up so you don't have to do it. <laughs> Man, I'm like wiping the freaking tears from my eyes now. This has been the funniest, most epic interview. I'm absolutely loving this. Anybody want any (laughs) CDs or cassettes? I'm going through them. I'm throwing out all the ones I don't want to keep. I've got thousands of each. Is that actually true? Are you offering to give people things that... um, that you're going to throw away. Is that, is that an accurate advertisement? Well, I don't want everybody writing me or not because I don't have to mail them out. Okay. But uh, I just throw them in bins. I throw them in a bin that I was a keeper, and then I throw it in a bin that's a guy I know that would like them, and then I throw them in another bin for St. Vinny's. They take CDs and cassettes. Well, look, I'm going to be in Eugene tomorrow. Oh, no, 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 you're not coming here. <laughs> I'm just joking, but... <laughs> But Ken, I mean, you're an amazing human being. You've contributed so much f- from your life. Thank you so much for your service. Thank you for being a light of love and hope. You've been beating that drum the whole time. I, I think you. I think you should change your tune. <laughs> I, I, you seem like a modest guy. Who? Uh, but I just want okay. to tell you. I'll, that, I'll just to just to be a good guy. I'll play you the tune. Okay. Here we go. That's the message for everybody. That changed my life, Ken. I'm naked on the floor in oneness with God right now from that. Okay, well, keep your hands to yourself. <laughs> that was absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much, Ken. Ken, we got we got nine more minutes to hit the 130 mark. Um, what is where? Tell me about where the Merry Pranksters should go. Is it over? Has the mission of the Merry Pranksters been fulfilled? No, of course not. The mission is never fulfilled until you're gone. And even then, you leave it for the rest of uh, who's coming after you to pick it up and carry it on. So the mission of the Merry Pranksters is to take us as humans, as as all all beings on Earth, to heaven on Earth. Like, that's the goal, to have that world. Is that correct? Heaven on Earth Earth is already here. But we just got to awaken people to it. We have to get people to realize that it can be anything. agree with that i think all we have to do is keep it alive keep heaven uh, here on earth not let it be taken away from us or destroyed and how would it be taken away what kind of actions would take it away burning too much coal burning fossil fuels tearing down rainforests all of those yeah, things destroying our beautiful earth our, our heaven on earth 
just so, for profit. So in your deepest psychedelic experiences, because I'm sure you've had a few in your life, because you've been so public about it, have you ever encountered extra-dimensional beings, angelic beings, things like that? Oh, my God. Are you shitting me? Well, you Hi, man. You're dealing with all that crap all the time. Sometimes you're fighting a dragon with your goddamn two-foot-long sword, and he's enveloping you in smoke and flame, and the next minute you're up there with the celestial beings riding the boats across the waves of ecstasy. And other times you're just there wallowing in the mud and having the greatest time in the dirt. So it's really just about where you're at. But did you, it just seems like, uh, you know, the psychedelic experience could be a portal for people to experience those higher dimensions. But it's really you're it saying. It could be. Certainly it could be. I mean, all things are possible in this here universe, you know. So you just got to grab the tail of the comet and, and uh, hang on while it takes you for that ride and see where you go and what you do. Right. Well, <laughs> Ken, I want to thank you so much for being a part oh, of this podcast. You've been such an incredible guest. You've enlightened so many people with the Merry Pranksters over the years and contributed so much. And your website is skypilotclub.com. Right. Eventually, we're going to have cronies out for you to purchase, but you do have two books that are available for purchase. The one that you wrote. And you can purchase them through my Facebook page. So you can, uh, are they autographed or are they just basically? Oh God, yes. Autographed. Yeah. Uh-huh. So you go to your Facebook page. Yeah. And you, can and actu- it, you can actually buy autographed books. Yeah. You go, I send you from my Facebook page to a page. I got two books I'm selling. Uh, one is my, uh, Vietnam novel and the other is a chap book, a uh, chapter from cronies, which is called we were arrested. And each one of those has their own page and you just go there and you, push a button there and you can, with your credit card, uh, order it. And, uh, then I mail it out to you. Oh my God. That's amazing. So all the people all over the world, listen to this. You could have a piece of history, not only the accounted tales in the book, but actually Ken Babs autographing it for you. That's absolutely amazing. And then of course, oh yeah, I could, I could, I do get orders from all over the world. And of in course, fact, that's a, that's one of the fun things about it is, when you're addressing, when I'm sending them out and putting the addresses on there, seeing where they all go. <laughs> and then you said that Zane Kesey has a website that you're affiliated with as well. I'm not affiliated with it. It's his website, keydashz.com. Keydashz.com. So you yeah. go to go to both of those websites. You can get Ken's book. You can check out Zane's stuff. I. I could go on and on. We could go on and on for hours, but we do want to take. <laughs> I can't. But I, I do want to say, Ken, we want to have you back on maybe in like six months, maybe in like a year. We'd love to have you on as a reoccurring guest to give us the, the true original prankster perspective on the world. How do you feel about that? Same as I always have. <laughs> Great. Oh, good. <laughs> Well, we made it here. That means uh, that we're going to continue on. And The future is a mystery. The future is a mystery, but it, my God, it's so beautiful and bright. It's almost like you can feel, you can feel what's coming, and it's so good. It's so Yay. good. We just got to get there. That's what it is. Yes, yeah. definitely. We, it's, we just got to get there. We're, we just got to get there. We can do it. We're all humans here on Earth loving each other. We can do it. Yeah, you know, but the thing is, all that you're talking about exists right now. How do people tune into it more? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Everybody's got to do it on their own, I guess. 
But there is a path that people need to take, and then once they take that path, whatever it is for them. I think there's many paths. Right, but it's very personal. Yeah, right. You gotta, you gotta work at it. I mean, but people are so tied up in all their problems and you know and everything. I don't really got time for that. Right. You know they. You know, there's some people that believe Ken that uh, at one point, if enough people wake up, if enough people enough human beings raise their vibration that they'll activate the other humans on this earth as a, it's like a scientific magnetic kind of energetic situation. That's that's good. I like that. But there's also the fact that the tipping point of the destruction of the earth is coming up very fast, which is just the opposite of what you're talking about. More people are involved with that than there are with making everything right. Well, as long as we're out here spreading the love, spreading the light, expanding out, Moving forward, we're going to tip that tipping point. We're going to tip the tipping point the other direction. We're going to save That's this planet. That's the spirit. We're going That's to s- the spirit. Yes, sir. We're going to save the planet. We're going to save good, the human good, species. Good, we're- Sergeant Jake. Yes, sir. Get we're out gonna- there, muster the troops. We are going to be out there as ambassadors of love and light to the universe. It's going to be yes. like Star Trek, but even better. Yes, that's the spirit, Sergeant <laughs> Jake. <laughs> well, I, I, I wouldn't be anything without Admiral Ken Babs. <laughs> Captain. <laughs> Are you sure you haven't been uh, promoted? I feel like you should be if you have No, no, I will always just be. <laughs> I, I got out as a captain. I'll just stay that way. Well, thank you, sir. At the, Now we're just going to go ahead and do our outro music. Ken, after this is over, let's just stay on the line. I'm going to say a few more things to you. And stay tuned, people. Well, next week, we're going to have some more guests, incredible guests. This is Midnight on Earth. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.